Chapters 7 and 8 of Omu. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Omu, a narrative of adventures in the South Seas by Herman Melville. Chapter 7. What happened at Hanamanu. On the other side of the island was the large and populous bay of Hanamanu, where the men sought might yet be found. But as the sun was setting by the time the boat came alongside, we got our offshore tacks aboard and stood away for an offing. About daybreak we wore and ran in, and by the time the sun was well up, entered the long, narrow channel dividing the islands of La Dominica and St. Christina. On one hand was a range of steep green bluffs hundreds of feet high, the white huts of the natives here and there nestling like birds' nests in deep clefts gushing with verdure. Across the water the land rolled away in bright hillsides, so warm and undulating that they seemed almost to palpitate in the sun. On we swept, past bluff and grove, wooded glen and valley, and dark ravines lighted up far inland with wild falls of water. A fresh land breeze filled our sails, the embayed waters were gentle as a lake, and every blue wave broke with a tinkle against our coppered prow. On gaining the end of the channel we rounded a point, and came full upon the bay of Hanamanu. This is the only harbor of any note about the island, though as far as a safe anchorage is concerned it hardly deserves the title. Before we could hold any communication with the shore, an incident occurred which may convey some further idea of the character of our crew. Having approached as near the land as we could prudently, our headway was stopped, and we awaited the arrival of a canoe which was coming out of the bay. All at once we got into a strong current, which swept us rapidly toward a rocky promontory forming one side of the harbor. The wind had died away, so two boats were at once lowered for the purpose of pulling the ship's head round. Before this could be done, the eddies were whirling upon all sides, and the rock so near that it seemed as if one might leap upon it from the masthead. Notwithstanding the speechless fright of the captain, and the hoarse shouts of the unappalled German, the men handled the ropes as deliberately as possible, some of them chuckling at the prospect of going ashore, and others so eager for the vessel to strike, that they could hardly contain themselves. Unexpectedly a counter-current befriended us, and, assisted by the boats, we were soon out of danger. What a disappointment for our crew! All their little plans for swimming ashore from the wreck, and having a fine time of it for the rest of their days, thus cruelly nipped in the bud. Soon after, the canoe came alongside. In it were eight or ten natives, comely, vivacious-looking youths, all gesture and exclamation the red feathers in their headbands perpetually nodding. With them also came a stranger, a renegado from Christendom and humanity, a white man in the South Sea girdle and tattooed in the face. A broad blue band stretched across his face from ear to ear, and on his forehead was the taper figure of a blue shark, nothing but fins from head to tail. Some of us gazed upon this man with a feeling akin to horror, no ways abated when informed that he had voluntarily submitted to this embellishment of his countenance. What an impress! Far worse than Cain's. His was, perhaps, a wrinkle or a freckle which some of our modern cosmetics might have effaced. 
but the blue shark was a mark indelible, which all the waters of Abana and Farpar, rivers of Damascus, could never wash out. He was an Englishman, Lem Hardy he called himself, who had deserted from a trading brig touching at the island for wood and water some ten years previous. He had gone ashore as a sovereign power, armed with a musket and a bag of ammunition, and ready, if need were, to prosecute war on his own account. The country was divided by the hostile kings of several large valleys. With one of them, from whom he first received overtures, he formed an alliance, and became what he now was, the military leader of the tribe, and war-god of the entire island. His campaigns beat Napoleon's. In one night attack, his invincible musket, backed by the light infantry of spears and javelins, vanquished two clans, and the next morning brought all the others at the feet of his royal ally. Nor was the rise of his domestic fortunes at all behind the Corsicans. Three days after landing, the exquisitely tattooed hand of a princess was his, receiving along with the damsel as her portion one thousand fathoms of fine tappa, fifty double-braided mats of split grass, four hundred hogs, ten houses in different parts of her native valley, and the sacred protection of an express edict of the taboo, declaring his person inviolable for ever. Now this man was settled for life, perfectly satisfied with his circumstances, and feeling no desire to return to his friends. Friends, indeed, he had none. He told me his story. Thrown upon the world of foundling, his paternal origin was as much a mystery to him as the genealogy of Odin, and, scorned by everybody, he fled the parish workhouse when a boy and launched upon the sea. He had followed it for several years, a dog before the mast, and now he had thrown it up forever and for the most part it is just this sort of men, so many of whom are found among sailors, uncared for by a single soul, without ties, reckless, and impatient of the restraints of civilization, who are occasionally found quite at home upon the savage islands of the Pacific. And, glancing at their hard lot in their own country, what marvel at their choice! According to the renegado, there was no other white man on the island, and as the captain could have no reason to suppose that Hardy intended to deceive us, he concluded that the Frenchmen were in some way or other mistaken in what they had told us. However, when our errand was made known to the rest of our visitors, one of them, a fine stalwart fellow, his face all eyes and expression, volunteered for a cruise. All the wages he asked was a red shirt, a pair of trousers, and a hat, which were to be put on there and then besides a plug of tobacco and a pipe. The bargain was struck directly, but Waimantu afterwards came in with a codicil to the effect that a friend of his, who had come along with him, should be given ten whole sea biscuits without crack or flaw, twenty perfectly new and symmetrically straight nails, and one jackknife. This being agreed to, the articles were at once handed over, the native receiving them with great avidity, and in the absence of clothing, using his mouth as a pocket to put the nails in. Two of them, however, were first made to take the place of a pair of ear ornaments, curiously fashioned out of bits of whitened wood. It now began breezing strongly from seaward, 
and no time was to be lost in getting away from the land. So after an affecting rubbing of noses between our new shipmate and his countrymen, we sailed away with him. To our surprise, the farewell shouts from the canoe as we dashed along under bellied royals were heard unmoved by our islander, but it was not long thus. That very evening, when the dark blue of his native hills sunk in the horizon, the poor savage leaned over the bulwarks, dropped his head upon his chest, and gave way to irrepressible emotions. The ship was plunging hard, and Waimantu, sad to tell, in addition to his other pangs, was terribly seasick. CHAPTER Eight, THE TATTOOERS OF LA DOMINICA For a while, leaving little Jewel to sail by herself, I will here put down some curious information obtained from Hardy. The renegado had lived so long on the island that its customs were quite familiar, and I much lamented that, from the shortness of our stay, he could not tell us more than he did. From the little intelligence gathered, however, I learned to my surprise that, in some things, the people of Hivarhu, though of the same group of islands, differed considerably from my tropical friends in the valley of Taipee. As his tattooing attracted so much remark, Hardy had a good deal to say concerning the manner in which that art was practiced upon the island. Throughout the entire cluster, the tattooers of Hivarhu enjoyed no small reputation. They had carried their art to the highest perfection, and the profession was esteemed most honorable. No wonder, then, that like genteel tailors, they rated their services very high. So much so, that none but those belonging to the higher classes could afford to employ them. So true was this, that the elegance of one's tattooing was in most cases a sure indication of birth and riches. Professors in large practice lived in spacious houses, divided by screens of tapa into numerous little apartments, where subjects were waited upon in private. The arrangement chiefly grew out of a singular ordinance of the taboo, which enjoined the strictest privacy upon all men, high and low, while under the hands of the tattooer. For the time, the slightest intercourse with others is prohibited and the small portion of food allowed is pushed under the curtain by an unseen hand. The restriction with regard to food is intended to reduce the blood, so as to diminish the inflammation consequent upon puncturing the skin. As it is, this comes on very soon, and takes some time to heal, so that the period of seclusion generally embraces many days, sometimes several weeks. All traces of soreness vanished, the subject goes abroad, but only again to return, for, on account of the pain, only a small surface can be operated upon at once, and as the whole body is to be more or less embellished by a process so slow, the studios alluded to are constantly filled. Indeed, with a vanity elsewhere unheard of, many spend no small portion of their days thus sitting to an artist. To begin the work, the period of adolescence is esteemed the most suitable. After casting about for some eminent tattooer, the friends of the youth take him to his house to have the outlines of the general plan laid out. It behooves the professor to have a nice eye, for a suit to be worn for life should be well cut. Some tattooers, yearning after perfection, employ, at large wages, one or two men of the commonest order, vile fellows, 
utterly regardless of appearances, upon whom they first try their patterns and practice generally. Their backs remorselessly scrawled over, and no more canvas remaining, they are dismissed, and ever after go about, the scorn of their countrymen. Hapless whites, thus martyred in the cause of the fine arts. Besides the regular practitioners, there are a parcel of shabby, itinerant tattooers, who, by virtue of their calling, stroll unmolested from one hostile bay to another, doing their work dog-cheap for the multitude. They always repair to the various religious festivals, which gather great crowds. When these are concluded, and the places where they are held vacated even by the tattooers, scores of little tents of coarse tapa are left standing, each with a solitary inmate, who, forbidden to talk to his unseen neighbors, is obliged to stay there till completely healed. The itinerants are a reproach to their profession, mere cobblers, dealing in nothing but jagged lines and clumsy patches, and utterly incapable of soaring to those heights of fancy attained by gentlemen of the faculty. All professors of the arts love to fraternize, and so, in Hanamanu, the tattooers come together in the chapters of their worshipful order. In this society, duly organized and conferring degrees, Hardy, from his influence as a white, was a sort of honorary grand master. The blue shark, and a sort of urim and thummim engraven upon his chest, were the seal of his initiation. All over Hivarhu are established these orders of tattooers. The way in which the renegados came to be founded is this. A year or two after his landing, there happened to be a season of scarcity, owing to the partial failure of the breadfruit harvest for several consecutive seasons. This brought about such a falling off in the number of subjects for tattooing that the profession became quite needy. The royal ally of Hardy, however, hit upon a benevolent expedient to provide for their wants, at the same time conferring a boon upon many of his subjects. By sound of conch shell, it was proclaimed before the palace, on the beach, and at the head of the valley, that Numai, king of Hanamanu, and friend of Hardy Hardy the White, kept open heart and table for all tattooers whatsoever. But to entitle themselves to his hospitality, they were commanded to practice without fee upon the meanest natives soliciting their services. Numbers at once flocked to the royal abode, both artists and sitters. It was a famous time, and the buildings of the palace being taboo to all but the tattooers and chiefs, the sitters beuvacked on the common and formed an extensive encampment. The Laura tattoo, or the time of tattooing, will be long remembered. An enthusiastic sitter celebrated the event in verse. Several lines were repeated to us by Hardy, some of which, in a sort of colloquial chant, he translated nearly thus. Where is that sound? In Hanamanu. And wherefore that sound? The sound of a hundred hammers, tapping, 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 the shark teeth. Footnote. The coloring matter is inserted by means of a shark's tooth attached to the end of a short stick, which is struck upon the other end with a small mallet of wood. End footnote. Where is that light? round about the king's house. And the small laughter? The small merry laughter, it is of the sons and daughters of the tattooed. End of chapters 7 and 8 Recording by Tricia G.